As we stand in this sanctuary today, would you please hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come from the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. They shouted, Hosanna, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, blessings on the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Don't be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first. After he was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. The crowd who had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead was testifying about him. That's why the crowd came to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign that he had done. Therefore the Pharisees said to one another, See, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the whole world is following him. Some Greeks were among those who had come up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip and made a request. Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip told Andrew and Andrew Philip and Philip told Jesus. Jesus replied, The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I assure you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it can only be a single seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their lives will lose them, and those who hate their lives in this world will keep them forever Whoever serves me must follow me wherever I am. There my servant will also be. My father will honor whoever serves me. Now I am deeply troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this time? No, for this is the reason I have come to this time. Father, glorify your name. Let's pray together. Father, we would add our prayer saying to you, glorify your name. Glorify your name, Lord, in this place on this Sunday morning. Glorify your name in our hearing and response. Glorify your name as your word goes forth. Glorify your name and our lives freshly surrendered. Lord, we come to you today and we ask you to speak. Speak, Lord, because your servants are listening. This is our prayer in the mighty name of Jesus. And we say together, amen and amen. Friends, please be seated. 
All right, I want you to tabulate something in your mind. You may want to pull an offering envelope out of the pew and, and pull a pencil out, and you might want to work this out on a scratch sheet. But I want you to think about something with me for a moment. Uh, over the course of the past year, I want you to imagine, just think this out, how many times have you heard the message, avoid a crowd? How many... How many times do you think you might have heard this? I mean, I, I'm guessing at least one time a day for a year, I've been told in print or on radio or, or by the powers that be or by a friend or the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Wizard of Oz to avoid crowds. And we have to be told this so repetitively because human nature just cuts against that. I mean, humans love a crowd. You just watch kindergartners on a playground a fight breaks out, everybody runs to it. Why? Because people like fighting? No, because people enjoy crowds. I've missed crowds. I've missed them a lot. I've been part of some great crowds in my life, both at concerts and athletic events and, and in church. Here's some big numbers over the history of the world. The largest college football game crowd occurred in Bristol, it's called the Battle of Bristol. This was between the University of Tennessee and Virginia Tech. Into the Bristol Motor Speedway, humanity packed 156,990 souls. That's a lot of people. The people on the top couldn't even see the game. Why did they go? Because of the crowd. How about concerts? You ever been to a big one? You ever been to a good one? Here's, here's a great crowd number. In 1994... Rod Stewart in Copacabana had a concert with 3.5 million people. That's a lot of folks to hear Rod Stewart. <laughs> now, now, if you're the 3.4 millionth person, you can't even see Rod Stewart's hairdo in the back of that thing. So why are you there? Are you there for Rod? You're there because of the crowd. You know what I'm really proud of? Is that a preacher beat Rod Stewart's crowd size. In Lagos, Nigeria, German evangelist Reinhard Bonnke preached in 2000 to a crowd of 6 million people. That's a lot of people for a sermon. Scott, you ought to take down that stat. That's a good one. 6 million people. People like crowds. And this Palm Sunday text began with a crowd. I mean, we read about the big crowd, and then the crowd came to join the crowd, and there were crowds everywhere, and there was noise, and there was sound, and there were fury. And they came to Jerusalem and crowded around Jesus because of the stories of the signs that he had done. Because he was meeting human needs at such, a, at such a powerful way that it was pointing to something beyond. They didn't know what that was, but they were there because of the signs. And then they were there because of the crowd itself. And Jesus didn't do a thing to tone down the crowd in Jerusalem that day. In fact, he poured diesel fuel on the fire. It was like he gathered the apostles around and had a staff meeting and said, okay, friends, this week I got a sermon come up and it's going to involve a donkey. It's going to be theatrical. We're going to make a big point. 
we're going to make a big splash in the midst of the crowd. And Jesus dramatized a message about the hope that Israel had beating in their breast. But on that day, even the disciples didn't get the significance of the signs. What a crowd it was. So much sound. So much fury. Jesus wasn't opposed to a crowd. It's obvious he, he ginned this one up even further. But he knew what a crowd was. And he knew that a crowd could be fickle. And in fact, this crowd would prove fickle. There's a great story in Acts chapter 14. It runs from 13 to 20. It's a story of Paul. Paul and Barnabas. They, Paul healed someone. And the people of the community bowed to worship Paul as a great God. And he was pushing them off. And he said, don't worship me. Don't worship me. And then it said, and there were religious leaders who came and won over the crowd and then they tried to stone them. How about that for flipping an experience? They go from worshiping you one moment to trying to kill you in the next. Andrew Abrair, a preacher up in Amarillo, says that every new pastor ought to be given a plaque with this Bible story on it. Crowd. It's powerful. Fickle. Crowd. So there was the crowd that day. And, and they were there as somewhat uh, like consumers trying to find the fountain of felt needs and the meeting of those needs. A crowd becomes a pile of consumers rather quickly. At the Battle of Bristol, 545,500 cans of beer were consumed. At 7 million ounces. And each time the debit card was swiped. That's a figure. Well, here was a crowd, each with needs, each with wants, each with desires. Here was a crowd missing the significance of the sign. So on this Palm Sunday, in the midst of a modest crowd, responsibly spread out. We need to ask ourselves, am I content to be a consumer in the crowd? Or will I press further? Because out of the crowd came some people. Out of the crowd, there were some men that stepped closer. You had these Greeks that wanted to see Jesus. It said they came, and they came with this request, Sir, we want to see Christ. We want to see Jesus. And Philip told Andrew, and Alan and Philip, and Philip and Andrew, and all, the, and all these people told each other, and then they told Jesus that there are these Greeks here that want to see you. And it was in this moment as the world was coming to Christ, not in a crowd, but in men. That Jesus gathered them about 
and began to point out the significance of the signs. And it went from sound and fury to seed and service. Jesus began to talk in odd ways that became clear. He said, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains a lone seed. But if it dies, it brings forth a harvest. Many of you knew Mr. Othel Neely. I loved Mr. Neely. He was an interesting and fun guy. The first meeting I ever attended in this church as pastor was a meeting of the foundation. Uh, and, and I went into the meeting and I pulled a chair back and Mr. Neely's cowboy hat was in that chair. And he just looked at me in that hat and kind of at the seat next to the hat. So I sat next to Mr. Neely's cowboy hat. I called a friend after that meeting. I said, I'm really in Texas now. I've been to a meeting about money and I sat next to a Stetson. And uh, Mr. Neely was kind to me. For over 20 years, he was the executive vice president of the Texas Seed Association. You'd go into his office. It was a shrine to Texas A&M. I mean, it was just Aggie everything in there, except for this grand poster that he had framed of a farmer in a field among a harvest. And underneath that picture were the words, first, the seed. First, the seed. When Jesus began to intentionally slow things down and give the significance of the signs, he was saying, first, the seed. And he was talking about himself. James McClendon said, the Christian church in all its manifold variety is the realization of the glad news of Easter. Jesus, before Good Friday, before Easter Sunday, was giving them the picture of the glad news that would define their whole life and community. He was saying, first the seed, and then the transformed, abundant life. One of the men who was there hearing all this that day would later write in 1 Peter chapter 3, these words beginning in verse 18. Christ himself suffered on account of sins once for all, the righteous one on behalf of the unrighteous. He did this in order to bring you into the presence of God. Christ was put to death as a human but made alive by the Spirit. And it was by the Spirit that he went to the preach to the spirits in prison. In the past these spirits were disobedient when God patiently waited during the time of Noah... Noah built an ark in which a few, that is eight lives, were rescued through water. Baptism is like that. It saves you not because it removes dirt from your body, but because it is the mark of a good conscience toward God. Your salvation comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at God's right side. Now that he has gone into heaven, he rules over all angels, authorities, and powers. Jesus, in talking about the seed, was talking about our odd baptismal identity. That life was found not in the grasping, but in the dying and resurrection. That he is the author and pioneer of our faith. He dramatized the coming 
of Messiah that day and taught about the odd way Messiah was to come. He would accept the title but defined its reality and invite us into that odd identity. Walter Brueggemann said we must recover the focal drama of baptism, which is a subversive act of renunciation and embrace. Jesus was teaching them that day the significance of the sign saying, you must renounce life on your own terms and embrace God's way even as God embraces you. The seed stands alone, it stands alone. But if it dies, life happens. And Jesus told them very plainly what that would look like. He said, the one that would come after me, he would lose himself to find himself in me. That where I am, there my servant would be also He said, said, the one that would come after me would serve, would abide, and that this is the life that God would offer. Frank Stagg said, strange as this may seem, the cross and life go together. Cross and life, not just cross and death. No deeper teaching came from Jesus than this, that one finds life by losing it. One lives by dying to self-centeredness and coming alive to God. Jesus pointed them to the seed and the service that came from the new life that was to be found in him. And he did all of this before the first trial, before the first sweat drop of blood, before the announcement of the angels, before the discovery of the empty tomb, He told us what would happen before it happened. And looking back, the disciples said, yes. Yes, he was right. Yes, he was right. Where can we go? For he has the word of life. Friends, the seed that is Christ brings life on this earth. It did then and it does now. It brings odd life born of his life. John began his gospel in him was life. He possesses it. He gives it. He does it in his own way and on his own terms. And those that would come after Christ, losing their lives, but oddly enough finding them, they are the fruit. They are the fruit of the gospel of God. And that means today on this Palm Sunday, thousands of years separated from that one, we are both fruit and farmers. We receive life and we're invited into his great mission to offer it. That's who he is and that's what he's called us to be. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from death is at the center of all Christian life and morality. It provides the ground. It provides the outlook. It gives a new dynamism for the followers of the way of Jesus. First, the seed, and then the life.
Peter, having told his followers these things, he, he told them what time it was. And he said, now is the time. He said, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 4, same book, the end of everything has come. Therefore, be self-controlled and clear-headed so you can pray. Above all, show sincere love to each other because love, love brings about the forgiveness of many sins. Open your homes to each other without complaining and serve each other according to the gift each person has received as good managers of God's diverse gifts. Whoever speaks should do so as those who speak God's word. Whoever serves should do so with the strength that God furnishes. Do this so that in everything God may be honored through Jesus Christ. To him be honor and power forever and ever. Amen. Peter said Jesus suffered in order to bring us to God. He said, we serve so that God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. He got it. Looking back, he got it. And he clearly proclaimed it so that we could get it as well. And so on the table, the decision for us is the question, am I content to be a religious consumer in a crowd? Or will I draw closer, saying with earnestness, I want to see Jesus. And when our focus and our greatest desire is not the fury of the crowd, but the face of Christ, then we will hear clearly his way. And we will hear as Isaiah heard the whisper of the Spirit saying, this is the way. Walk in it. So today, what will you do? Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you surrendered the whole of your existence to the promise offered by this one? who we believe with all the fiber in our being, lived, died, was raised again to give us life. Do you trust Christ? You can, and that can start today. That can start in this moment. This is the appointed time of salvation for men and women. If you have answered yes to that, and you claim Christ as your own. Jesus says, you'll be found where he is. It's not Jesus was, it's Jesus is. He is alive and active and at work in this world. And if we claim to follow him, he said, you'll be where I am. You'll be there. Do you plan on this week being where Christ is? Or would you rather be the CEO of your own calendar? First, the seed. Then the abundant harvest. 
He is so good. Let's give thanks. God, we thank you so much that you invited us to take hold of life that is truly life. Lord, cast from us any desire for living that is below that. Give us a hunger for the abundance of life found in you. Lord, as we sing this song, I pray that we would begin to settle matters in our heart with you and that you would give us the courage to share those things with one another as we seek to strengthen each other for life and for the journey. Lord, we love you because you loved us first. We thank you in Jesus' sweet name. And we pray together saying, Amen. Please stand as we sing this hymn of commitment together. Let God do a work in the inside of your heart as you seek to follow Christ.